ask you to please take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. Gospel of Mark chapter 9. And we'll be taking up a rather large chunk of Scripture today, which could have easily been broken into two sermons. Uh, but for the sake of seeking to reach the goal of completing the Gospel of Mark, uh, we will take up this large section from verse 14 to verse 37. You'll remember last week we saw that glorious picture of the transfiguration in which Jesus takes the inner circle, the three, Peter, James, and John, and takes them up to a high mountain, and he's transfigured before them. They see, as it, as it were, his glory unveiled before them. And, of course, Moses and Elijah is there. They're discussing the departure, uh, his, his imminent departure in Jerusalem, that is, his going to the cross. And this was Christ's way of showing this inner circle something of his unveiled glory. Something which would be very, very important as they would carry on the ministry through Pentecost and through the early church, through the saving of many disciples. Of course, then the Father speaks from heaven, this is my Son, listen to Him. And so now we come to a section of Scripture in which they are descending from the Mount of Transfiguration and we'll see a scene of some chaos going on. And um, some of you might be familiar with uh, Renaissance art. There was a painting that was done called The Transfiguration. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but you can Google it, and several of the images will pop up regarding it. Uh, it was painted by Raphael uh, back in uh, probably around 1500. He died in his mid-30s. But he was asked and commissioned to paint this great painting, The Transfiguration, he was not able to finish it, so his assistants finished it for him. Why do I bring this up? The painting itself is something that is sort of two stages. On the top, it is full of light. There's an image of something like Jesus, Moses and Elijah, and the three disciples bowing down on this mountaintop, and it's just filled with light. It's not artificial light. It's not natural light. It's supernatural light. And then as you come halfway down... It's kind of what's going on down here below. And there's a group of men, the nine disciples, the crowds there. And it just looks like chaos. And all the glory of the light that was on the top half is missing from the bottom. You can hardly make out the details of their faces because it was so dark down there. And there's one or two that are pointing, like I guess the idea of that here comes Jesus descending down. Well, that's something of what we will see today is they... Descend down from the mountain, there's a picture of chaos and arguing and dissension and, and the disciples being uh, powerless to cast out a demon and a demon-possessed boy. And so that brings us to our text. Let's read it, beginning in verse 14. And when they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I have brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and he grinds his teeth and he stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out. And they could not do it. 
And he answered them and said, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling on the ground. He began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. It has often thrown him into both fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cries out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. And when he came to the house, the disciples began questioning him privately, Why? Could we not drive it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Verse 30. From there they went out and they began to go through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when they have killed him, he will rise three days later. And they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. And then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before him, and taking him into his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. May the Lord add his own blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray once again. Father, we thank you for this detailed text before us. We thank you, Lord, that as it were, you pull back the veil to show us the absolute horrors of demon possession in this very detailed account. We thank you that this father's faith was fortified through the work of Christ and the authority of Christ and what he accomplished. Lord, we thank you that we have what true greatness is as redefined by our own Savior. And Lord, we confess that we are a people that are needy, a people that are prone to doubt, people that have weak faith much of the time, a people that can seek to exalt self rather than esteeming others more important. So Lord, may we not sit here with one ear closed and one ear open, but may we have both ears open, the eye gate open, that our minds and our hearts would be ready to receive your word. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Some commentators list this first section as there's two main sections here is the story of the epileptic boy. And 
There was little known about brain function in the first century. Some of the symptoms do resemble that, but I think it's safe to say that what we have here is a picture of an exorcism. This is a demon. <laughs> Jesus himself says it is as he would drive him out. So first of all, our first point, demon possession was a terrible affliction. Have you ever felt powerless or desperate in a situation? Consider the disciples. They've already been commissioned. They've already been called forth. They've been given authority. They've gone out and they've preached. And here the nine are absent from Jesus and the other three, and the situation is brought. The father brings this little boy, as it says in another account, his only boy, and he brings him. And, and the disciples, are, are they, they must feel powerless. They're unable to do what the Father asks. And so what we see in verse 14 is that the scribes began arguing with them. Now remember, are the scribes friends of Jesus and the disciples? No, <laughs> no, not at all, right? So wherever they can, they're going to be there to go, aha, I thought you had this. And, you know, so there they are. And the word is very intense. It speaks of a... It's not just a mild disagreement. There is a firm arguing going on here between them. Little is said really of the, the crowd and the scribes, but there's enough to conclude that the disciples' failure in public heightens the unfolding drama of what happens as Jesus um, proceeds on. You might think when I was talking about Jesus descending from the mountain and finding chaos, does that remind you of some Old Testament accounts? Moses, Exodus 32, he's up there with the Lord, he comes down, and what are they doing? They've made a golden calf, there's trouble, there's chaos, there's idolatry. Same thing with Elijah, when he comes down from Mount Carmel, he comes down and he finds chaos. And I think it's not an accident that, that there's it's sort of a parallel here, and it's a lesson for us that Mountaintop experiences are wonderful. I hope you'll go on the hike. It's very, very awesome to be 6,000 feet in the air, away from the city and, and all of that. Mountaintop experiences are wonderful. Maybe you've been to a women's retreat, a men's retreat, or something where the Lord really spoke to you and the Word of God came alive and, and you, you felt like you've never felt before. But the reality is, is they don't last forever, do they? Reality sets in. We have to come back down to terra firma, as it were. And the realities of a life filled with trials and difficulty come upon us. There's another scene in which the Pharisees and scribes are grumbling with the disciples. In Luke 5, it says, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answers for the disciples and says, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now in verse 15, notice there's our, one of our key words that we've pointed out that occurs, I believe, 41 times to the gospel. Immediately. Okay, We've got a few immediately's in our text. In verse 15, immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. The word for amazed is... It's, it's not strong enough in the NAS here, and it means to be relatively in an intense emotional state because of something that has happened, a, a complete perplexity. And so some have said, well, when Jesus descended off the mountain, maybe he looked like Moses. Remember when he came down and his face was glowing? I don't think that's the case. 
I think the case is, is that we don't know how long this situation has transpired where, where there's this arguing, the failure of the disciples, but as they would see Jesus, it's almost as though in the absence of Jesus, we know that He's missing in a situation like this. And here comes Jesus. And they're amazed and they're perplexed that here He comes to meet their need. Now, as you compare the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this is one of those rare situations, as Mark being the briefer Gospel, where he has twice as much text as the other Gospel writers. And if you were listening as I was reading, the details that are given to this demon possession, is, it's so much further detailed than the other accounts. There are some differences in the wording as well. For example, in Luke, it says, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. So you have that added nuance that, that this isn't just one of many sons of this man. This is his only son. And in that culture, that would be the one that would carry things on, do the inheritance. In Matthew 17 and verse 15, the text reads like this, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. Well, verse 18, we're given a very detailed description here, actually beginning in verse 17. He's possessed with a spirit, and it makes him mute. So first of all, this boy is speechless. He can't talk. Many of you are parents. Consider if you had a, a child that could not communicate to you. you know, there's sign language, there's writing or whatever. If the older, there's, there's way, ways to communicate. But just the fact of not having that mouth-to-mouth communication alone must have been painful for this father. But it's not just that. Look at it in verse 18. It, when, and whenever it seizes him, that word means to take control of, to viciously take control of. And then the next word it says, and then slams him on the ground. You might think of some cartoon, I don't know, Popeye, where you know, he eats the spinach and he grabs Pluto you know, by a finger and just wah, 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 slaps him on the ground, right? Uh, that's the idea. The idea here is that he's being slammed to the ground in a painful way. The third term that is given here is that he foams at the mouth. This would be very similar to a seizure, but he's foaming at the mouth. The words get more intense. It says, and then he grinds his teeth. So picture that grinding of the teeth. Where else do we know where grinding of teeth takes place? In hell, right? It's those who are in hell that are grinding their teeth in anger and in frustration and of the hopelessness. And so here it grinds, he grinds his teeth as this demon would take possession and seize him. And the word, also another definition of this word, is that he screams out. And so you remember some of the other demon, where Jesus rebukes demons and casts them out earlier in Mark that there's a loud cry. And we're going to actually see that with this. But the idea here is that this is a shrilling. And you think of like a, a, horrible, a horrible shrill from the very pit of hell. That's what I think of when I, when I read the details that are here. Seizes, slams, foaming, and a shrill that sounds like it's coming from the very pit of hell because it's a devil that's inside of him. 
in the last term here, in verse 18, the NAS has is stiffens out. The ESV has as rigid. So the idea here is that he is, after all of this, that he's laid still. The word actually means to dry up. It's the same word that occurs in James 1, in verse 11, where the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass. That's the word that's used here. So in a sense, this boy, after being seized and slammed and foaming and all of that is, and we don't know how old the boy is, but he's laying there as though he's just completely withered away with no signs of life. And that's the idea here. This is what Mark wants us to understand as he quotes the Father. Consider what a contrast this must have been for Peter, James, and John. Where did they just come from? Mountaintop experience of mountaintop experience, seeing the glory of the Lord revealed, right? And then to come down to see this this impeccable holiness of the glory of Jesus Christ and to come down to the realities of earth, and not only the realities of earth, but to see the vile, disgusting nature of demon possession. The one who is against the Lord and His purposes and His cross work that has tried to deter Him is now the one that they visibly see within moments of coming down from the mountain. It's a good reminder for us, I think, that spiritual warfare is alive and well. (laughs) Yes, that's right, in the year 2013, spiritual warfare is alive and well around us. Ephesians, Paul writes, and says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the powers and against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Do you believe that there's a battle going on around us right now? I assure you there is. The Bible is very clear that that is what's going on. We thank the Lord that He has dispersed His angels around as well. We can't see this. We're not going to start looking for a demon under every musical instrument or pew or whatever. But we know that the Lord will show Himself to be sure and and true and will protect us. But there is warfare going on around us. In verse 19, we see something of Christ's frustration over the unbelief of this generation. Look at it. And he answered them and said, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. There's a sense in which, in Numbers 14, when the spies went out and then returned with the false report, if you remember that account, Numbers 14.11, and following, you can read that later. There's a sense of a parallel here where the, the father is just disgusted with this people because they're so unbelieving, they're so rebellious. And here, Jesus' frustration stems from this rampant unbelief, not only of his disciples and not being able to accomplish this, but the crowds and the the scribes that are around him. Well, secondly, beginning in verse 20, does your faith need to be fortified? Look at verse 20 again. It says, they brought him the boy... And when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into convulsions and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. 
The idea of rolling around, it's in the imperfect tense, grammatically speaking, that meant that this was a continual thing. It, it just it didn't roll over once, and that was it. He continued to roll around uncontrollably. Verse 22, it has often thrown him into the fire, into the water, to destroy him. What a sad picture. What helplessness this father must have felt as he saw his boy not just ill, not just with perhaps a deadly disease or something like that, but being violently assaulted and being completely helpless that there's nothing you can do to prevent it. Can you imagine that? Come on, dads, <laughs> think about that. Th that's the epitome of helplessness. It's, it's like when your child has to go for a procedure you know, uh, meningitis, and they tap into the spine, or, or some procedure of which the child or the baby is just screaming out, and you feel so helpless as a parent, and there's nothing you can do. How much more with this because he's being plagued by a demon? His father's faith it appears that he had some faith. We'll see this in a moment. But his faith was shaken. He put his confidence in Christ, he's heard about Christ. He's, he's come to the disciples, the, the appointed representatives of Christ, but the disciples had let him down. They weren't able to cast this out. We've all met people where we're, we feel let down by them. Maybe there's somebody that you can think of uh, from a past experience or somewhere else in another state where you felt like you've been let down by other Christians, people that take the name of Christ. And, and we have to be careful to guard our hearts to not become embittered, to not become to not, not allow bitterness to set in. Sometimes we have many people come through here and, and some have been burned and burned badly by other churches. And, and that's a grievous thing. It's a very sad thing to hear of that. But brethren, we have to remember that we're never going to find the perfect church on this earth. And if it existed as soon as you joined it, it would cease to be perfect. <laughs> the perfect church is in heaven. And, and what we have to remember is that man will let us down. Okay? Don't be surprised when it happens. You will be let down. You'll even be let down by other Christians. But you can't allow that as a justification for sinful behavior. You see, your faith is to be in the Lord, not in men. And when we begin to elevate man and we begin to post up and prop up men or a man or something like that, you will be let down. Look to the Lord. That's where your faith is to be. In Him. I couldn't imagine if one of my children were being tormented like this. The intensity of verse 20 when it says throws them into convulsions. The word with the prefix son on it, which means together with communicates something of the violence of a dog tearing up a carcass. One of the lexicons actually alluded to that. That is the forcefulness of what's being displayed here. The violence that's being displayed here. And we need to remember that Peter himself would remind us in his first letter, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about, around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour same terminology. So what does the Father say? Here He comes. He says in verse 22, in the middle, but if you can do anything, 
take pity on us and help us. If you could do anything, take pity on us and help us. The cry of this father reminds me of the psalmist. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears. And it's as though the man knew something of the messianic promises from Isaiah 35 and other where he would open the the eyes of the blind and unstop the ears and that that the lame would leap for joy. And so he knew that if there's anybody that can help this situation, it's Jesus. It's the Messiah. That's the one who can come. Why does Jesus delay in healing the boy? I mean, there's quite a bit of dialogue that's going on here. There's descriptions. There's the father of self dialogue. Jesus asked, how long has he had this condition? <laughs> you know, and if, there's a lot going on. Why doesn't he just heal him right away? Well, I think there's two primary reasons. And the first is to magnify the absolute hopelessness of the boy's condition. That there's, there's, there was no hope except for Jesus for this boy and also to strengthen the Father's faith. John Calvin said, Faith cannot stand unless it is founded upon the promises of God. And this man had some faith. He had some faith that this was indeed Messiah. This is indeed Messiah who could remedy the situation. So the Father comes and He asks, take pity, literally have compassion on us and help us. Jesus restates his if in verse 23, and Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Verse 24, immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. The father had some faith, but he realized that he had doubted. He realized that that he, need, he needed to long for more. And the father confesses that he has some faith, but in his weakness, he appeals to Jesus to create in him a heart that has a greater confidence and, and faith in him. And no wonder faith itself is not something that we just derive or we pull out of our back pocket as a gift of God, according to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Jesus knows what needs to happen here. There needs to be a visible demonstration of His authority to this particular crowd at this particular scene. Psalm 8, of course, speaks of Him ruling over all things and that all things have been put in subjection under His feet. And so here He has, obviously, authority over the demonic world. Doubt is a mysterious thing. Sometimes we can go through seasons of trial where we begin to doubt the character of God. When we begin to doubt, does He really see my situation? It's so much more, the gravity of my situation is so much worse than anybody in the whole church. And why doesn't He see my situation? Why hasn't He come to touch me? And we can be just like this man and and be filled with doubt. Um, To use a Pilgrim's Progress analogy, where Pilgrim, when he's in Doubting Castle, all he has to do is remember the promises of God, and that's the key to let him out. And we can be cumbered with such doubt that as it were, we let giant despair come with the club and beat us up, and then leave us there for 24 hours and come back and beat us up again until finally there's enough sense driven into us and we remember the promises of God. 
doubt can be so debilitating. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, faith is keeping the heel firmly planted on the head of doubt. Faith is keeping the heel firmly planted on the head of doubt. Well, what about verse 23? Some of you have no doubt heard this verse used a lot. All things are possible to him who believes. Obviously, in this context, what Jesus is trying to emphasize here is that you are coming to the Son of God, and of course I can do all things. But some have taken this and used it out of context and said, it's a blank check. You want the Mercedes Benz? You want this? You want that? Or whatever, and your carte blanche, just whatever you want. Just ask for it. It's a very abused text when it's taken out of context and it's used for carnality. There's two things I would say to this. First of all, Romans 8.28 is the promise that God works all things together for good to those who are called and are called according to his purposes. Right? So, he's, he, so it's a submission. We need a submission to the providence of God. Likewise, Psalm 37, for example, speaks of that he will give us the desires of our heart. And so you blend together the submission of God's sovereign working in your life the desires of your heart that God is in tune with, and then our desires become aligned with God's purposes. And we'll see an example of where that wasn't the case with the disciples in just a few moments. James sums it up good. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. See, all too often that we may take a verse like this and begin asking for this, that, and the other thing, but our motives are tainted. We're asking with the wrong motives. So we shouldn't be surprised when that is not fulfilled. Verse 25, we see a rapid crowd um, gathering together. When Jesus saw that the crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them thought he was dead. There's a rapid gathering around. Jesus, before things get even more out of control, he rebukes the spirit. He, he appears to look as though he's dead. And then something very touching happens in verse 27. Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. Can you remember another child that Jesus did this for back in Mark 5? Jairus' daughter, again, taking the inner three disciples and the mother and father alone, and he takes her by the hand and raises her up. So too here. Now, verses 28 and 29, you have to ask the question, why were the disciples not able to cast out the demon? It doesn't particularly tell us. Jesus tells us that this kind comes out by prayer. We can't say for sure that they weren't praying. Maybe they were praying. Maybe they didn't have enough faith in the way they were praying or something or other. But you, you can almost picture the scene of chaos. Uh, back to verse 14. You remember, is, is they're coming down and there's this arguing and, and this chaos and the disciples are unable. You picture one disciple saying, oh, no problem, man. Here, bring your son here. I'll take care of this, guys. I got it. Okay, you know, nothing happens. And then another disciple says, oh, here, no, I'll do it. I, I, know, I know how to do this. And they maybe all nine of them work through 
to no avail. <laughs> and so in verse, and by the way, their faithlessness is symbolic of the wider human condition. Verse 28, it says, when they had came into the house, that's the oikos, that's the place of instruction and teaching all throughout the Gospels. When they had come into the house, the disciples began questioning him privately, why could we not drive it out? And Jesus said, this kind comes out, does not come out by anything but prayer. Jesus explains that it is only by prayer. James 5.15 says, the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. John Calvin said, in prayer, two things are necessary, faith and humility. By faith, we rise up to God. By humility, we lie prostrate on the ground. So prayer is the key that unlocks faith in our life. Prayer aligns us with who God is and what His purposes are for individual Christians and for us individually. Prayer helps remind us of the promises of God, which we know. So many of us who have been walking with the Lord, we know them, but we can become dull and just dull, and we need to pray. And then these things are brought to remembrance. Effective prayer needs an attitude of complete dependence upon God. Well, we must move on. We saw the Father's faith fortified and the demon cast out, Jesus displaying his authority. Secondly, the path to true greatness is through servanthood. And that takes us to uh, verses 30 to 37. And first of all, there's a, a, the second clear prediction. If you were with us back earlier in chapter 8, I said around 8, verse 30, 31, 9, 30, 31, and 10, 30, 31 in that area, there's three clear predictions of what must happen to Messiah. In response to Peter getting it right, saying, thou art the Christ, Jesus unpacks what that means. This is the second time. Now, again, we have another time stamp, or at least a location stamp. Here it says, and when they went out, they began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. Verse 31, and he was teaching his disciples, telling him the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Jesus, of course, has alluded to this in previous times, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. Um, the way, that, again, the tense of that Jesus was teaching his disciples and was telling him is the idea that this was a reoccurring theme during these days, okay? It's not just this one little snapshot right here, but... He's continuing to try to get them to get it. <laughs> and he's, that's been the topic of his discussion. Differing from back in chapter 8 and verse 31, this time the phrase is added, delivered into the hands of man. This is something that will occur several times through the rest of the gospel. The idea of being delivered over. It's Pilate delivers him over in chapter 15. Uh, Judas delivers him over when he betrays him. And then, of course, ultimately, in Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts 2.23, and this is glorious, this man, speaking of Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. In other words, the same verb that is used, the idea of delivering over, 
is ultimately God's purposes of having this done. Jesus himself is predicting this to them. And they still didn't get it. Reminded of the hymn, Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Well, back in chapter 8, when Jesus gives this clear teaching, what happens? You remember? Peter rebukes him, right? Just back to chapter 8 and verse 32. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. The disciples didn't get it. What do you mean Messiah is going to suffer? What do you mean he's going to die? No, that's not, that's not, that hasn't been our hope. Well, here too, look at verse 32. And they did not understand the statement, and this time it says, and they were afraid to ask him. They still did not understand. And by the word, by the way, that the, the wording there is actually put very mildly. It literally means to be ignorant. The disciples were ignorant. They didn't get it. They still did not understand the necessity of the death of Messiah, and they had no concept of the resurrection. Well, in verse 33 to 37, I want to take the rest of our time here, what time remains. It says, then they came to Capernaum. Remember, they left Caesarea Philippi. They're journeying through the region of Galilee, and now he's back to what had been his home headquarters, and for the last time will be in Capernaum. And it says, when he was in the house. The definite article, no doubt, is referring to Peter's house, where much ministry took place as early as the end of chapter 1, and repeatedly through the Gospel of Mark. So he's in Capernaum, he's in a familiar house, in Peter's house. And he began to question them, what were you discussing on the way? There had been some distance for this journey. And he knew that they were discussing something amongst themselves. And the word actually for discussing, it means to argue or dispute. And, you know, Psalm 139 says, that the Lord discerns our thoughts from afar. He knows a word before it's even on our lips. So the Lord's not ignorant to this. He knows what's going on. I don't know what distance there was between the disciples and him. And so he asked them very pointedly, what were you discussing along the way? I find it interesting that it says, but they kept silent. <laughs> It's like by their silence, it was a confession that what we were discussing probably wasn't the best thing. There's, there's a silence that is there. And of course, what were they discussing? Who is the greatest among them? What does true greatness look like? Jesus himself, now you have to catch this, has just spoken of his own humility of being killed and going to the cross and they're busy thinking about how great they can become. Do you see just the, the irony here, the chasm of ignorance that happens to be here? Jesus knew what they were talking about. And probably they were discussing in this culture where you would sit at meals and worship and, and authority in the community and all of this kinds of stuff, which, which gives one up a position of prestige and honor. That's why the Pharisees are talked down upon because they love those great seats and so forth. But Jesus knows what they're talking about. And I want you to notice with me, 
something that Jesus does not do. Verse 34, they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Then sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. They're silent when Jesus first asks them. Some time passes, and Jesus says, it's time for me to instruct what true greatness is. And he calls the twelve to himself in gentleness and in meekness. And do you know what he does? He does not rebuke them for their desire for greatness. Do you see that? He doesn't say, what are you talking about? You want to be... No, that's that's not the situation. But what he does is he redefines what greatness looks like. Do you catch that? He redefines what it looks like. Look at the text here. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. What he is doing is redescribing what true greatness looks like. You see, the disciples themselves were caught up with a personal desire, a personal success, and Jesus exposes their motives. In 3 John, remember Diotrephes? It says that I wrote, as John writes, he says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what I say. Why is he condemned? Because he loves to be first. (laughs) Oswald Sanders, in his great book on leadership, says, true greatness, true leadership, is found in giving yourself in service to others, not coaxing or inducing others to serve you. True service is never without a cost. Boy, that's a lesson we could all learn more of, isn't it? I I think for the most part, we grasp this idea, but boy, this is something that we can all grow in. Verse, see, chapter 10... In verse 43, it says later, he's going to bring up this theme in a different way. He says, but it is not, in 1043, it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be the slave of all. And then, of course, the grand reason, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many the word for servant here is the word diakonos, which means to wait on tables. It's the word that's used for deacon here. That's the idea of just humble service and serving of others. That's what's being asked here. The reality is that we can just be like the disciples, even like the Pharisees, that our pride or our insecurity can, can cause us to think of ways to elevate self, to somehow prop self up to make self look better than we really are, to overvalue position and prestige, and in God's kingdom such motives are destructive. Pride, pride itself seeks to dethrone God. Paul writes in Romans 12, be devoted to one another and brotherly love and give preference to one another in honor. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, esteem one another as more important than yourselves. I suggest to you that the best training ground for this is in marriage. <laughs> Those of us who are married can agree to that, right? This is a great training ground. 
be able to put others first, to be able to set aside your own desires and so forth. In Jeremiah, the Lord speaks through Jeremiah to Baruch and says, but you, are you seeking great things for yourself? Do not seek them, for behold, I am going to bring disaster on all flesh, declares the Lord. Real leadership and real greatness involves serving others. Very simply put, just as Jesus says, not using them. How practically can we serve others? Well, first of all, not looking to positions of honor, to exalt self, not looking to those types of things. Those things are tainted with selfish motives, and we need to be able to see what is a God-honoring motive compared to a selfish motive. Secondly, if you see something that needs to be done, Nike swoosh, just do it. If you see something that needs to be done in the context of the church and you have the abilities and, the, uh, and so forth to do it, to do it, to remember what we learned in chapter 8 and verse 34, that we must deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Him, that we must continue to cultivate a spirit of humility within ourselves, that we must see ourselves as small, that God may use us for His glory, but it's only what He has done in us that makes us anything. In serving and counseling others to be a good listener, to show genuine interest and compassion for a brother or sister that may be sharing something with you, but also to be sensitive to the needs of others. You see somebody sitting by themselves on a bench out there with food that's a first-time visitor and no one's going up and talking to them, to be sensitive that I bet that person would like to be warmly welcomed to our church and to actually just do it <laughs> and to welcome them. To be sensitive to the needs of others within the church. You see, you hear a prayer request during prayer meeting. You, you see a prayer request on, on the email or whatever. And, and to be sensitive to the needs of others. To take these things to prayer. And then if possible, to even be the one to fulfill the need. Well, very quickly, Jesus takes a child. In verse 36, taking a child, He sent him before them and taking him into his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. What Jesus is doing here is showing an illustration. He's not showing the meekness of a little child or anything like that. What he is showing an illustration of those who are little in the kingdom and to esteem them. Think of Matthew 25 and, and verse 40 where he talks about how that to the degree that you received me, that you uh, received those that are hungry and thirsty and in prison and lonely and sick, to that degree you have received me. That's a paraphrase, of course. Um, the idea here is to receive little ones. Jesus demonstrates what it means to be a servant of all. God has always been concerned for the defenseless, for the widow, and for the orphan. God is the protector of the defenseless. And so think of various ways of greatness when it comes to the idea of a child. There's something very special about a child. Children grow up and become the next generation, right? So just think of parenthood. The noble calling and task of training our children up in the ways of the Lord. It's a noble task. Think of orphan care or adoption to take Practical orphans in their distress and to seek to meet needs. How about helping support as we do Turning Point Pregnancy Resource Center? 
with Watch for Life and banquets and volunteer hours that are there. And, and to, for what purpose? That, that we might be able to assist them as they would counsel those on the front lines that are considering the slaughter of unborn life. Some of you have children now that are in the nursery and someone serving in the nursery so that you can be here. That's true greatness. That's true greatness. Changing diapers in the nursery so that you can be here for the worship. Our Sunday school teachers, the list could go on. Whoever receives a child like this in my name receives me. Well, may we take these lessons and learn them to heart what true greatness is. True greatness is living for the glory of God and seeking to be a servant of all. Not so that you can be recognized or get the pat on the back, but for the glory of God. And secondly, to prayerfully and humbly trust the Lord in every situation. Pray that He would strengthen your faith when it is weak. Because we all go through these, these seasons where, there's, where doubt can be a heavier burden than at other times. You need to remember what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves or to consider something is coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. It's far better to have a mustard seed of faith than armfuls of self-confidence, carnal self-confidence, that somehow you're so great, but to have a mustard seed of faith. The Lord is well pleased with that. And brethren, we have to look to Christ, not to ourselves. When, 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 debt, when doubt is weighing us down and when our faith feels so weak, it's not that we look at ourselves and our own circumstances, but we look to Christ through the eye of faith as He's revealed through the Holy Scriptures that He is the One that intercedes for us. He is the One that has died for us. It is His righteousness that is imputed to my account. And so we look to Him to increase our faith. The Puritans said, take ten looks at Christ for every one look itself. Because if you look at yourself ten times and only one to Christ, you're going to fall on your face in complete failure. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> we have to look to Christ and not to self. <coughs> I was waiting for that. <coughs> Mr. Spurgeon, in a sermon, by the way, he preached this text, uh, the previous text here. Uh, the father and the demon-possessed boy five times in his ministry out of all of his sermons. This is a, a quote from one of those sermons. And he's speaking of looking to self and the fallacy of this. I want you to listen. If we compel them to own the Word of God, own the Word of God is the only and sufficient basis of faith, they straightway begin to look at their own believing as if it were Savior, and they cry, my faith is so weak, my faith is so variable, my faith is so shaken, and so forth. It is as if those who were bidden to look to the brazen serpent in Numbers, and it's instead thereof tried to look at their own eyes rather than to look to that. Here is a child thirsty. There is a flowing fountain. And you give the child a cup that he may go drink of the water, but the child does not go to the fountain, but is pleased with the empty cup to try to satisfy himself of his thirst. Oh, what a foolish child. Now that's just a snidbit of his conclusion from one of the, 
sermons that he preached on this text, but do you see the point? We know the remedy. We know the remedy and we want to wallow in self. I believe. Help my unbelief, O oh God. Oh, how we need to have that riveted through every fiber of our being. And if you're outside of Christ and you're not a Christian today, oh, would you pray that prayer? Help my unbelief. You say, well, God will never accept me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've done. Well, God accepts murderers, as was prayed actually earlier or commented on, persecutors and blasphemers such as Saul of Tarsus, and yet he obtained mercy, and you too can obtain mercy. The hymn writer says, the dying thief rejoiced to see the fountain in his day, and there may you, though vile as he, wash all your sins. Our Father, we thank You for the promise of Christ and the Gospel. We thank You for the revelation that is given here in our text today that He would be handed over. But Lord, we know on this side of the cross that it was part of Your predetermined plan that You would accomplish the salvation of every one of Your elect. Forgive us for being dull. Forgive us when we allow doubt to weigh us down. Oh Lord, forgive us for not looking to Christ in fuller measures and portions that our hearts would be filled and that we would see with such a keen eye of faith and be encouraged and be lifted up. Oh Father, we pray that You would work true greatness in each one here. Lord, that we would cultivate humility. That we would cultivate a, an attitude of service and that if we're not doing something in this church, that we would want to find something to do to contribute for the glory of God. Oh Lord, we thank You for the many that serve. Lord, for the many who work behind the scenes, the many who joyfully serve You. Lord, we rejoice again for this time in Christ's name. Amen.